Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. And welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me today is Sydney Hardy. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. It's so good to see you, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's great, great. So we're joining each other live here in Midtown, New York. It's ironic that we've been working five blocks apart for all these years and now we're seeing each other. I find that very, uh, very strange. So, so you're, you're living here in New York. Just Can you just tell everybody what, what are you up to these days? Sure. I uh, After a number of years uh, on Wall Street and in, uh, in the investment advisory trading business, I started my own fund management firm. It's called Hardy Brothers. I have a fund called Hardy Capital Management, which invests uh, globally, uh, all over the world, various currencies, commodities, uh, all kinds of uh, equity products and fixed income products, 7,500 products that I analyze and uh, actively manage, uh, you know, really for about the last 11 years or so. Wow. And now you use a macro strategy. Is that right? It is a macro strategy. It's very much driven by math and analytics. I tried to put that degree in economics and mathematics to good use, wound up getting a master's in applied statistics. So a lot of it is really driven by statistical analysis of data, economic data, pricing data, a variety of different things, and ultimately an algorithm helps me, you know, put together the portfolio and ultimately uh, execute the trades. So for those people who are not adept at the things of Wall Street, I only know th about Wall Street when things go terribly wrong. Uh, so may you never need my services. But can you just describe for everybody what a macro strategy is? A macro strategy is really one that looks kind of top down. I first look at kind of the world and get a sense of what's going on in the world, whether it be current events, whether it be activity in companies and prices and countries and and really kind of look down to the granular level eventually to make specific trades in individual stocks or individual interest rate products or looking at different commodities and things like that. So really a macro strategy is one that basically takes basic economic principles and looks all the way down to the granular level to, to build a, a specific portfolio. So like, okay, supply chains are disrupted. So, okay, what's that going to mean for different investment possibilities, that kind of thing? Precisely. A simple example would be, you know, what's the impact of the supply chain on ultimately the, the price of Amazon, for example, or what's happening with oil prices being Im impacted by tanker traffic in the North Atlantic, things like that. That's kind of real world examples of things that I'm doing on a constant basis, uh, pulling various information globally and trying to synthesize it into to specific trades and try to take advantage of those anomalies in the market. That's, that's essentially my job, to position the portfolio in such a way that recognizes those things and tries to, to act on them in the market. What are the big macro things you're focusing on right now? I mean, COVID's got to be one. Supply chains, are there any others? No doubt. Supply chain is big. Uh, healthcare in general is big. Another one is uh, probably, I, you may have seen it over my shoulder. I'm spending a lot of time looking at, at electric cars and, you know, kind of, 
the impact on, on natural resources and investing in natural resources that are going to be impactful on things like electric cars. The most basic example of being, you know, what's happening with China relative to their activity in South America around lithium, for example. I'm yeah. absolutely consumed by that in terms of which companies are in a position to either be hurt, uh, hindered, or impacted in some way by the absolute stampede of activity around natural resources globally. Interesting. Interesting. So do you ever look at things like uh, climate change and, and that kind of thing? Almost every day. Uh, my last meeting <laughs> earlier today was specifically about trying to get my portfolio a little bit more active in evaluating companies on an ESG standpoint, essentially looking at how they how they govern, how they deal with climate change, and being much more active in the conversation of, of how are they essentially uh, helping us try to save the world. So without a doubt, that is a huge conversation going on right now and another, another very important topic that I'm involved in. So let me switch gears here just a little bit. So you said you started this 11 years ago. It must have been scary. Like, but starting your own thing, what motivated you to do it? And how did you get the courage to take that leap? Well, I'll tell you, I started and really this really incubated when, you know, after graduation from Yale was really, I started at Solomon Brothers in their research department. And if anyone who's familiar with that, you'll know that was led by a gentleman by the name of Henry Kaufman, Dr. Doom, as he was known in the 1980s. You know, to his left side was John Lipsky, who wound up running the IMF. To his right side was Dick Berner, who wound up running both Morgan Stanley and I believe Goldman Sachs' economics department. So this was a, a dream job around a dream team. And I think at that point, I really convinced myself that, you know, if I spent enough time here and spent enough time kind of grinding away and learning from them, that I eventually wanted to start my own firm. And that really got going, uh, ironically enough, when Solomon Brothers went under during the Treasury auction scandal. Uh -huh. At that time, I was pretty much had just broken onto the trading floor as a bond trader and really had gotten involved pretty heavily and, and really thinking I was going to emerge as a, uh, as a big-time Wall Street guy. And I said, well, you know what? Let me take a step back. I, this is something I really think I want to do for myself as opposed to doing it for other people. And it probably took another 15 to 20 years to kind of work my way to a point where I could develop my own strategies, develop my own kind of proprietary ways of looking at the markets, and ultimately start my own firm. Now, saying all of that, three months after launching my firm, we have a huge collapse of Lehman Brothers. So I did not oh, pick Oh, wow. The, you did it right before then. <laughs> I did not pick the most optimal time to break out into the market. Oh, with that this. must have been terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Fortunately, you know, one of the things that you'll learn in this business is that you better get pretty comfortable with failing because you do a lot of failing. I think that probably helped the fact that, you know, I played baseball and, you know, basically you're a, you're a Hall of Famer if you fail seven times out of 10. And so <laughs> when you think about trading, <laughs> you have to be prepared to take losses if you can manage those losses. And I spent most of my career really learning how to manage losses in such a way that it keeps you alive and <laughs> keeps you survive. That definitely was put to the test in, you know, the, the summer months of 2008 and 2009, when I launched a global macro strategy and the world is collapsing. <laughs> so uh, we fortunately spent about two years working our way out of it. 
fortunately, I've been able to be around good people and surrounded myself with some good people. And it really took a good two to three years to kind of work ourselves into a into a framework where we could ultimately grow the business. And so this is kind of the output of all of those calamities that I've been able to face over the years. Uh, so that's that's really where we are. And wow. I, I, you know, tested by crisis is is an important part of this business. So, you know, where do you see the world going? Like, what are the kinds of opportunities that you see that, you know, regular folks like me might not might know about, think about, if you're thinking about the big picture all the time? Well, I think, I think you have to be very much aware of what's happening with our relationship with China, I think is very important, will be important. I think how we adapt and our ability to adjust you know, to technologies. How do we respond to this current crisis uh, with the climate? I think smart companies, I think smart people in general are, you know, have the solutions, are trying to put those solutions in place. And I think we just have to listen to them. I think we have to be very, very much uh, thinking, you know, forward looking as a country. I think we've always been that way. At times, it doesn't seem we're doing a very good job of that lately. Uh, but I think over the next 5, 10, 20 years, we're going to have to be much better at identifying issues and solving issues going forward. I think that's our challenge. So we were just talking before uh, we got on here about our kids. And there have been a couple times in my life where I've pointed to different classmates as role models for me and then shared that with my children. And I talked about you with one of my boys wow, yeah. earlier this year. Oh my goodness. You know, he's a bit of a ragamuffin sometimes. And my one of my memories of you is that you are always put together. Like you were never like disheveled. You always look like you had this respect for yourself and respect for what we were doing. And you carried yourself in a way that made me always realize like, okay, He's here. He's present. And he's carrying himself in a way that makes me know that I need to show him respect and all of us respect for what we're doing. That was my memory of you. Well, you know, first of all, I'm pretty blown away by that. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, and we just talked about this. I just remember how naive I was at the age of 17 and 18 and thinking about, you know, my first early days on old campus, how completely clueless I was. So I think I put on a pretty good show. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, I think we were all a little bit clueless, but yeah. like, you know, you you didn't roll out of bed and have all wrinkled clothes and stuff. You're like, you always were put together. Like, where did that come from? Because I also thought of you as a disciplined person. I always saw you going to the gym for the baseball team. Like, where did that come from? Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I, and this will give you a little bit of insight. You know, Hardy Brothers means a lot of things to people. It really is a combination of my father and his brother, uh, my grandfather and his brothers, my two boys. Now, that's not a, you know, I would say to you, you know, I didn't grow up in a male-dominated household. In fact, probably the reason why I'm probably put together the way I'm, you know, it's perceived I might be to you is principally because of my mother. My mother was just an incredibly giving person and someone who absolutely demanded that you treat other people well and be a person that was always adding value to other people. And I think you got a pretty good taste of my mother um, at, at Yale. 
um, someone who really made a point of making sure that I was trying to give as much as I received. I mean, I've been incredibly blessed with parents and with grandparents who were very much disciplined. They were great examples, first of all. My father, principally an incredible role model and example. But my mother was really the one who, you know, really shaped and molded my personality and made sure that I conveyed to other people a sense of of giving and wanting to give to others all the time. That's always been very important to me. Well, it, it made an impact. And it's funny, it's 35 years later, and I still think about that. So wow, wow, that's amazing. And I very much appreciate you saying that. And, and it's a great compliment, you know, to all of the the men and women in my life and in my family who that was always a very important thing is how you presented yourself to others, but more importantly, how you added to their experience. You know, I remember those early days on campus and, you know, thinking about our roommates, thinking about various uh, people I came in contact where I learned a lot from my roommates. I could run through the list of them, you know, pretty easily, but they all gave me something that I took away and I carry with me today. And I would be embarrassed to name all of as many of them and then leave some of them out. But but they know who they are. Uh, they know that they contribute contributed immensely to my uh, to my development now and, and kind of the person I am now. Yeah, I think it's funny. I, I ask a lot of people, what's the most important class you took? And I certainly have an answer to that. But I don't remember most of the classes I took. I really have to stretch my brain. But I don't forget the people who had an impact on me. And most of them were classmates. I'll tell you, probably the most important class I took in high school was typing, because that's the one thing I kind of still carry with me today that, that I rely on. But certainly, you know, the relationships outside of the classroom where we, you know, our experience was really, really important. And the conversations, the the intramural sports, the, you know, the variety of things that we did collectively at Morse was really impactful to me personally and really helped me develop. I carry a lot of it with me today. I carry a, a ton of it to me uh, with me today. And you are also in a fraternity. So I remember you were the president of the fraternity. I was. Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, Zeta chapter. How important was that to your whole overall experience and has that carried on? Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. I tell you, I, I and again, I'm I'm a legacy. I'm you know I've, I'm a second generation member of that fraternity. It's incredibly important to me because the emphasis on is on community service and serving you know particularly the black community, and it has been kind of a bedrock, uh, foundational, organizational f for me. And even at the time, and obviously you know my fraternity brothers on campus during my time at Yale, that was really you know, the high point of my experience there. Those, again, those relationships are rock solid to this day. I just played golf with Rich Roberts, your contemporary in, uh, uh, in the class of 86. Just a great lifelong friend, someone that I'm sure I could call and we haven't seen in a while and have a beer, 
have a cocktail, and I would learn something. <laughs> and I think that was really the important part of my experience uh, you know, with my fraternity brothers at the time. I was very much a sponge, <laughs> just sitting around in their rooms, listening to them talk about life and about their achievements and accomplishments was a great motivator to me. That's terrific. There are, uh, I know you have two sons. I don't know if they're going to follow you in the fraternity they or will. not. There's no doubt about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. So when you look back, are there events on the on the baseball diamond or parts of your athletic experience that continue to be important? You, you touched on it a little bit earlier. I tell you, you know, probably, and I've, I've told this story before, and this is such a great form to tell it, but I was freshman baseball player, hadn't quite made the starting lineup on the varsity team yet. And I was sitting in the dugout, must have been early February. And for those of you who don't know, I'm from a town called Fort Valley, Georgia. I don't think I had ever played a baseball game with temperatures below 70 degrees. It was about 42 degrees and light misty rain as only New Haven will give it with the, the wind coming off the warp. Obviously, I was miserable. I was cold and I was charting pitches, which for those of you who play baseball is probably the worst job you could have as a baseball player wanting to play. And lo and behold, gentleman walks up and sits next to me and he says, hey, how you doing? I'm Bart Giamatti. And shook my hand and we spent three innings talking. He wanted to know who I was. In fact, he had known me. He knew me. He didn't know. I didn't know he knew me, but he knew me um, because I guess the baseball coach had said something to him about me and about my recruiting. And we just talked. We talked about baseball. We talked about what I wanted to do. We talked about my life in Fort Valley, Georgia. And I never, ever forget that. I never forgot how kind he was, how just normal, <laughs> normal he was. And that's the thing that struck me. And as he went on to, as, as many of you know, become baseball commissioner, et cetera, et cetera. I remember seeing him my junior year again. Hey, Sid, how you doing? Suffice it to say, you know, again, I've had incredible experience on campus of Yale University. That probably ranks as one of the, the highlights to this day. Probably the highlight of my life up until that day was sitting with him and just having a regular guy's conversation while I was charting pitches in the dugout where George Bush <laughs> played and Babe Ruth played. And, you know, suffice it to say, it is wow. the great memories of my life was that fleeting few minutes of... Well, three innings you know, is a while. Yeah. I mean, just kind of watching the game, sitting and talking and watching and playing the game. And then it, and then he was off to his, his regular duties yeah. a few minutes after that. So just, you know, I've had many blessings and that was one of them. Wow. I don't know how many of our classmates have a Bart Giamatti story, but that's a good one. I do. I do. Uh, that is great. So as we're we're sitting here in uh, sort of the end of 2021, as we're taping this or recording it, I guess we don't have tape anymore, but any event, as we're recording this, um, what are your goals for the next 10 years? Like, what are you going to try to get done with your business, with your life? Wow. I think, you know, number one is is just getting my getting my kids in a good place where they can be just responsible young men. That's number one, making sure that they're off to a good start in their lives. You know, they're one, as I mentioned, one is 
finishing uh, college and will ultimately be a member of the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant this time next year. Uh, so that's something, you know, so when I think about the next 10 years, I, I'm going to be a military parent. And so all of the advocacy and, and the thought process around that will be built around that. So certainly that's going to be a, a top priority. From a business standpoint, you know, I want to make sure my uh, the people who have invested with me and the people who count on me obviously get a satisfactory return. And, and we build a we build something that's important, not only from a, a dollars and cents standpoint, but I'm very much into building something that from a people standpoint is a very positive place to be. I'd like to be somewhat impactful on the industry as a whole. There's certain standards that we should be setting that I want to have a voice in in what, that what conversation. Kind of, what kind of standards? I think, you know, in terms of some consistency around uh, performance, some consistency around how we hire, how we promote, how we cultivate uh, a culture of diversity. I hope you know, I could build something that would be at least a model in that regard. I think that's really important. I think it's important. Uh, most of the boardrooms and most of the trading floors that I've been on, I've been the only African-American or I've been one of a very few. And that's been most of the last 30 years. I'm hoping and I see elements of that changing. I don't see those changes happening either fast enough or in a way that I think is helpful or is really moving us in a direction that we need to go. So I, I definitely want to have a voice or at least be an example. Perhaps that's probably the best way to do it is just be a really good example of what diversity looks like, about what accomplishment and what hard work looks like. I think that's really important. And then, you know, quite frankly, you know, finally, you know, I I want to be or at least have a voice in, in bigger picture that's happening in this country. Obviously, my native state, Georgia, has a lot of issues in terms of its voting. One of the things that, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate in that, spent a lot of time here in New York, but I also spent a lot of time in Georgia, given the events of the last year in terms of some of the legislation and activity that's going on down there, I actually moved my voting to Georgia. Uh, and so next year I'll plan to be voting in Georgia uh, because I think you, you, we can we can protest, but we also have to participate uh, in the process that make things better. So I probably would say over the next 10 years, I'm going to be a little bit more of a native of Georgia than I am going to be a native New Yorker, much to the chagrin of my Brooklyn born and raised wife of 27 years. <laughs> Well, I think with uh, modern technology, you could probably split time in both places and, and make it work out. I hope you do. You don't know my lovely wife. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, I'm gonna, as your lawyer, I'm going to advise you to take the fifth exactly. from here on out. Yeah, there might be a few lawyers involved <laughs> after she hears this podcast. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, um, so if you look back at the coursework you did at Yale, the, the other activities you undertook, the fraternity, the baseball team, the other stuff you've done. Like, what are the things that had the most enduring impact on you from your college experience? Wow. I mean, I think, I think without question, it's the people. I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> and I will, I will name a few, few of these young men who are, were very impactful to me. I mean, I think about, uh, you know, my freshman roommates, Rod Diaz. I think about 
James Estes, I think about Mike Wishney. I think those three guys were probably the most impactful in terms of just getting me kind of through freshman year and into a point of graduation, not necessarily because of what they said, but just kind of how they conducted themselves and how good friends they were to me. I think about, you know, people, you know, I, I think about Peter Small, a guy who also majored in economics and math, who basically I sat next to him most of the of, of our classes and, okay, how's he studying? How long is he studying? I better make sure I study just as much as he does because he's really smart. Uh, guys like Rob Sherry and uh, Jordy Simmons, uh, Simmons, you know, Mike Wishney, Don Malky, my roommates at Morse. Uh-huh. Incredible people and just great examples of kind of how to navigate life. I think they were all very, uh, very much important to me. I think about them a lot, even though I haven't spoken to them, uh, most of them, but very impactful. The people. And I could go through every fraternity brother. I could go through every, you know, all the members of my senior society who are just incredible examples of a quality people that I, that have touched me. And, uh, and of course, you know, I would be remiss if I, you know, I once all of that process occurred, you know, the person that kind of brought me back down to earth is uh, my wife, Tony, who was very much like, yeah, yeah, you went to Yale, but I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> you don't have anything on me. And that's pretty much how it's been. <laughs> the well, you know, I think that's right. I think some people use it as a badge as if it's mm-hmm. legitimizing in and of itself, but doesn't yeah. That you have a degree from a particular place doesn't legitimize who you are. And I, I think there's a lot to the badging and the where you went to school that sometimes I think we see in New York City for sure and, and other parts of the world, too. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I guess I hope we're old enough and mature enough to realize that, you know, we should be judged by the lives we've led, not where we went to college. Yeah. And I, one of the messages I, I try to give my kids on a regular basis is that. Those four years go by so quick. Ultimately, it's what you do. It's how you conduct yourself. It's how you behave. It's how you, it's your work ethic. Those are the things that define you. And I would like to think that you want to be a sponge. And one of the things I really tried to do uh, when I was younger was try as much as possible to be a sponge of information and of learning and of best practices and, and the right way to handle things. And then try to give try to be a giver. And that's the message I try to leave my kids every day. I think that's what I try to project as much as I can is you have to have a giving heart and a giving spirit. It's amazing the blessings that will come to you if you just try to extend yourself to other people. And I hope every day I try to do the best at that. Again, that goes back to my mother, my mother's, uh, you know, wishes for me uh, going forward as an adult. I try to convey those to my children and uh, and the people that I come across. So we got to the part of the podcast where we do the lightning round. Just a couple of quick sure. questions here. Sure. First of all, if you had to choose between pie or cake, what would it be? Oh, definitely cake. I'm a cake guy. Red velvet cake. Just no question about it. There was no hesitation there. No hesitation. All right. So there are some pizza places in New Haven that didn't exist when we were there. Mm-hmm. One of them is Bar, which uh, serves a mashed potato pizza. Mm-hmm. Is mashed potato on a pizza a brilliant innovation whose time has come or an abomination to a sacred piece of food? I have had the experience. 
My kids love it. To me, it's an abomination. <laughs> give me, give me Naples, and I'm good. <laughs> All right. If there was one ballpark in the entire country, you could say you can spend an afternoon watching a game. What ballpark would it be, historical or current? And what baseball players would you want to see on the field? If it could be anyone from history. Well, you know, for to give you a little bit of my history, I was born in Chicago. Um, in Maywood, Illinois, is where I spent my first six, seven years. And so my heart is with the old Comiskey Park. You know, when you have a big brother and he's a Cub fan, you absolutely have to be a White Sox fan because that's just the way it is. So I'm a diehard Chicago White Sox fan. And I'm also, as I grew up and moved to Georgia, I'm a huge Atlanta Braves fan. So obviously I'm, I'm in the zenith of my fandom as a uh, representative of the Braves. But if I were going to pick a ballpark to spend time and who would be on that on that field, it would be very easy for me. It would be the old Comiskey Park. And it wouldn't be Jack Brickhouse. It would be Harry Carey. Because if you remember Harry oh, Carey from oh, those yeah. times, he actually was the announcer of that I remember for the Chicago White Sox. And he was. he Before he went to the Cubs, he was uh, with the White Sox. And so, you know, hey, hey, and, uh, you know, holy cow, started at Old Comiskey. And I would probably be on the right, probably on the right field, down the right field line, because there would probably be, if I were, if I wanted a dream team, I'd probably have Henry Aaron uh, in right field. I'd probably, center field would probably be, you know, I would probably go center field, uh, you know, I love the A's at those times. Yeah, I love the A's with the white with, with the, the white shoes. And so it might be Claudel Washington in center. Oh, yeah. It would, of course, be Dick Allen of the White Sox uh, on, on the, in left field. He was the power hitter that I, I emulated and fashioned my swing at. Um, probably at third would be Mike Smith. Probably at short. I think in deference to my, to my in-laws, I'd probably say Derek Jeter. Uh, because they're Yankee fans, so I'll, I'll give I'll give my I'll give my in-laws Derek yeah. Jeter at short. Um, but you know I would go with probably you know my favorite second baseman, and I'm I'm, I'm very torn about it. Well, was he the best second baseman or was he kind of you know? I do like Roberto Alomar, and at that time he you know I loved kind of the switch hitting thing, um, that was great. You know probably at first break first base you know again my. My initial thought would be, you know, so I'd probably throw Dale Murphy at first because he was, you know, getting a little older at the time. Though he he played a lot of center, but Claudio Washington is Claudio Washington. I couldn't catch, but since I was out, you know, in right field, but you know, I would defer to to catch. But you know, my favorite catcher was Johnny Bench, uh, and then pitching, ironically enough, would be, you know, the nuff, the knuckle curveballer Wilbur Wood. Um, who I absolutely loved as a young boy for the Chicago White Sox. He's probably my favorite. And I'm probably shaped a little bit like him now <laughs> because I always found it fascinating that he could throw the ball like that. But yet he didn't look like he was in very good shape. Yeah, so Phil Negro at the end wasn't there you either, go. but there you go. <laughs> so that would be my lineup. All right. Well, thank you so much for participating. This has been great. My pleasure. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings. One Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. 
an in-person reunion. June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.